Welcome to the Momenta Partners Uncommon Perspectives podcast series. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner. In this series, we bring you some of the most insightful and creative thinkers, authors, and practitioners who share their experiences and views across a range of topics that have relevance, not just for business, but for life as well. We hope you enjoy their insights. Good day, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Momenta Edge podcast. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner. And with us today, we have a special guest. This is uh, Dean Nelson, who, uh, among uh, you know, many accomplishments, is uh, chairman and founder of Infrastructure Masons. And, and Dean's got a, uh, a, a deep career, 30 years plus in, in tech and business. He's involved in a lot of interesting things. We actually met last year uh, when we there was an, I that was uh, part of an event that uh, that Dean was organizing and we got to got to talk and uh, he's uh, he's really got some fascinating views on uh, the technology um, data centers and, and really could be the, the, infra, the infrastructure of the future of the information economy so uh, we'll just dive right into it and, and Dean it's it's a pleasure to talk to you Excellent. Well, thanks, Ed. I've been looking forward to doing this with you for a while since we talked. <laughs> I think awesome. it was in Vegas. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Right. So, um, you know, so let's. I'd love to just start with some context and and understand, uh, you know, a bit of your background. I mean, what you know, what attracted you to technology, and you know, what are some of the you know, what are some of the formative uh, experiences that that you've uh, that you've gone through, you know, that have really shaped your view of the world. That's, uh, um, I think that the punchline of this whole thing is I did not choose this career. It found me. I happened into it. I, I stumbled upon it. And uh, I'll tell you just a quick story around it. Um, you know, I, in high school, uh, I aced all my electronics classes. It was just natural. I really enjoyed it. And uh, when I graduated, I thought, okay, I'm, I'm a smart guy. I'll go out and get a job and everything will be fine. I didn't decide to go to college, et cetera. So um, I went and joined a, a group called Manpower. And uh, they had me do all the jobs that no one else wanted to do. So I spent a year doing things, making no money that were just not fun. And I realized, what am I doing? <laughs> so I went back and talked to my dad and uh, he, he said, you know, you've been, you're really good at electronics. Maybe you should explore that side. So I went to a trade school. I went to DeVry and Phoenix and graduated in two years. And then uh, some microsystems came to the campus and uh, they hired half my graduating class. So I started in Silicon Valley on my 21st birthday, so July 10th in 1989, and uh, I had no idea what Silicon Valley was. I never had touched anything when it came to hardware. Um, I knew electronics, except they taught me that, but I learned everything on the job when it came to it. And going into the Bay Area, uh, you know, I've done 30 years now in the Bay Area, and with just some incredible companies, you know, Sun Microsystems, I did 17 years there. And I, I believe I went to the University of Sun. I learned technology, I learned business, I learned strategy, I learned management uh, because of all the experience there. It was a great uh, environment. And in the middle, I also went to a startup company and learned a ton there uh, for about three years called Allegro Networks. Then um, I left uh, when Oracle acquired Sun and went over to, to eBay. And so I ran the global infrastructure there, and then I took a six-month sabbatical, and then I joined Uber and, uh, about three years ago, and I just recently left there. So, And I, I actually uh, made the change to be out of the corporate world uh, and back into strategic advisory and, and uh, consulting side uh, on my 30-year Silicon Valley anniversary. So that was July 10th this year. So it's been a, it's been a really interesting ride, and, and watching – the technology from the beginning, uh, at least you know, 30 years of it in the Silicon Valley has been absolutely incredible. Well, I think what's really interesting about the, you know, the 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 term infrastructure, right? Is it is it really, uh, it, it it defines a you know that technology has become 
you know, foundational to, you know, to mm-hmm. our society, to our economy. And I'd love to get your perspective, you know, from from when you started. I mean, how, you know, how mm-hmm. people were thinking about uh, your technology and, and, and the, the way you saw the, uh, you know, this certain pretty the skill sets and the awareness of technology, of, you know, evolve through your career, because it, I mean, being in the sun, I think that's just about uh, as close to ground zero of the, you know, the, the you know, the real information <laughs> revolution as, as you're going to get. Yeah, I mean, they put the, the dot and dot com and you look at this, the boom that happened for 2000 for the bust. When a bubble burst, you know, it was incredible to watch this uh, more than a decade worth of just, you know, growth in an emerging space. So, you know, I, I remember my first web browser, Mosaic, and, and I remember my first email and my, you know, just all these things that happened in 89, 90, and 91, it was all starting and uh, being a part of that. And, you know, I now when you fast forward, it's all just common. Everyone expects it. Here's a here's an interesting thing. I started Infrastructure Masons, which is a, a professional association, and it's about individuals, and it's the builders of the digital age. These are the people that do this kind of underlying digital infrastructure work that makes the Internet of Everything happen. Without that foundation, the world doesn't actually operate, and you know, 99% of the world has no idea that this exists. They just expect it to work. So what we wanted to do is bring together that group of professionals that drive, you know, over $150 billion worth of infrastructure around the world. I'm talking digital infrastructure, data centers, network, hardware, the software that manages these things, and, um, and just bring them together in a, a common environment where you don't have uh, sales and everything else. We, wanted, we leave our companies at the door, and we share experiences, and we build that network, and they connect, grow, and give back. So that's the community we started. But if I look today versus 30 years ago, and I look at the university systems, any of the colleges, et cetera, you know, where they're sending students today is not into the foundational side. Everybody wants to create the next app. They want to do the next startup. But there is so much need and so much growth underneath the foundation that makes that happen. There is an awareness problem. And 30 years later, you know, people are happening into the same job like I did. So we want to change that. And so as an industry and as an association, we are, are creating an industry awareness campaign to help colleges, universities, and that to understand what do they need to teach so that they can attract people into our field. So it's just it's interesting to me that you know 30 years later, the same problem exists. Mm. People have to happen into this industry. And that's, that's a problem because you know, you look at baby boomers and everything else, all the retirement that's coming, we're going to have a, we're going to have a talent shortage and all of us are fighting for the same people, uh, right. In all these different areas. And, you know, the infrastructure is not slowing down. We are building stuff everywhere in the world. I've never seen how much, I've never seen this rate of growth of capacity, uh, going on right now. It's explosive. It's, uh, it's so interesting that, I mean, you just touched on this, you know the, this broad array of skill sets, and I, I'd love to hear you uh, or hear your views on on some of the, the the key skills that are involved in in building out infrastructure. Because in you know in my conversations with you and you know some of the other uh, you know, members of of the of the infrastructure masons, what what has mm-hmm. struck me is just how you know how comprehensive and how multidisciplinary the you know yeah. the 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 necessary skills are you know, are, are required, you know, to be able to build, you know, these, mm-hmm. these giant data centers that have to be operating 24 seven. I mean, it's, it's, uh, yeah. it's really, it's pretty, uh, just, it's just a, an enormous task. You know, um, and, and I think it's, it's under, um, appreciated. <laughs> Uh, it, it, it's, you know, everyone expects it to work, but they don't really understand how much uh, work goes in to make it function. And, and they only really realize it when something goes out. Well, you know, they, when there's the, the blackout on the East Coast and the lost power, like all of a sudden the stock exchange got impacted. And, you know, when you have a global outage and you're trying to pay for something, you can't or you can't log into Facebook and just the basics around it, you realize that there's so much underneath there that has to be built. So the disciplines you're talking about. So first off, you know, when I, um, I, I do some charity work in India, and one of the things that I was really proud of is I went back there um, earlier this year, and I taught 
a digital infrastructure 101 course to all the, ju- the seniors, juniors, and teachers at a school my mom and I built um, about six years ago. And what I did is I started with my phone. I was in the corner. I took a picture of us, like a, a selfie of the room, and then I did a WeChat of that picture to somebody else in the room. And so I asked all these people, all these, these people in the room and said, what happened? And they're raising their hands. Oh, you know, you took a picture and it sent. And I said, but how did it work? And so we proceeded to now follow what happened on the phone when it went over the ether into a cell tower, the cell tower to fiber, the fiber to an internet exchange, the exchange to an edge, the edge that goes back to a core data center as it hits a server, a front end server, it gets stored on here and gets processed and then it's transmitted back the other direction. Very interesting. I said, now follow that path. Now think about it. Every step in there are thousands and thousands of jobs all over the world. And it's only growing because all the demand that's being um, generated out there will only put the need for more capacity in all the places where people are. So it's a great career and and a really interesting problem to solve. So when you talk about the disciplines, you know, think about it, a data center engineer. Well, there's engineering, design, construction, operations. How about a network engineer? There's stuff in the LAN, right? The folks that are interconnecting the metro, the ones that do the global WAN aspects of it. So there's subsea cables, a fiber under the ocean that connects everything. Then you look at the hardware that's in there that does compute, everything from standard compute to storage into machine learning, all the stuff that's going on with AI. Then you start saying, well, the software that has all that stuff function. All those are different disciplines. And then you've got the business side too. The, uh, the financial analysts are saying, what's the TCO and infrastructure and deployment? What investments do we make? To the sales and systems engineers that go back and make these systems work from the partner side into the people that buy it. So there's just literally hundreds of thousands of jobs all over the world on the foundational infrastructure. And here's the thing that I believe is a risk that people haven't really seen. Um, today, you know, core data centers, are uh, in all these major regions like, you know, um, Ashburn, Virginia. The Northern Virginia market is one of the largest, if not the largest data center markets in the world. And you've got the same thing replicated in different parts of the U.S., all over Europe, and they're starting to emerge in huge places in APAC, you know, and then you've got emerging things like uh, LATAM and Africa and those, and they're building up more infrastructure so that the other half of the population that's not connected will get connected. Then you have technology like 5G and machine learning, augmented reality, virtual reality, et cetera, that will start to now boost it again. And my prediction is that the edge market will dominate. It will have the wave will be bigger than all of the core data center deployments that have ever been deployed. So how do you fulfill that demand? And how do you have the talent when you've got this extremely uh, rich, robust, and growing segment based on the world's population's consumption of data and processing. That we need people in it, and you know, infrastructure masons. When we start talking about all these uh, our advisory council members, they have the same challenge. I have a hard time finding the the actual people. Is there? Is there? Sense? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I, 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 I was struck when I, when I spoke to you know to members of your group at at just the. The absolute depth and, and breadth of, of expertise, and mm-hmm. it's unique because you have uh, you know that the understanding of real estate and and property and and siting and power, um, you know, not to mention of course the you know the 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 understanding of the technology and business as, as you mentioned. But uh, you know where where do you feel that uh, let's maybe we start in the U.S. I mean, what what are some of the uh, the educational areas or or shortcomings that you see that that you think may be hampering the development of some of the skills that are going to be needed? You know, we have um, these academic institutions that, you know, are well-tuned machines. And and you look at what their charter is. Great curriculum that allows students to get the skills to be able to land a job. Simple as that. So, but it takes years for them to develop the programs, curriculums, and degree programs that can be associated to those, those um, jobs. And I think what's, what's happened is, um, you know, the technology industry and uh, what's really happened in digital infrastructure is adapting and changing so fast that 
what what I think the schools are missing is the picture, the bigger picture of what is digital infrastructure, how do the pieces fit together, and then uh, what are the programs that will align to them. On the flip side, first off, what jobs are being uh, uh, created, and then what jobs are in demand? So think of a heat map. But what we lack today is we don't have a taxonomy or a, a job ladder about all these different careers. And then from there, if we have the job ladder, we can create a heat map about which companies are hiring in which areas. And that can tie right back into the programs at these colleges and universities and even you know, uh, trade schools to say, okay, I can feed that demand because the schools just want the same thing. What do you need filled? I'll build the programs to do it. They're very good at it, right? but they, they're lacking that demand. What is it? And so there's a misalignment there. Uh, uh, that, that we see. And, you know, it's, it's not one thing. It's not an Ivy League school or, you know, a university or a, a community college or a certification program. It's all the above. They all need to have insights into what this underlying foundation is so they can create the programs that actually create the jobs that land their students in it that have, you know, rewarding and lucrative careers. Who do you think is you know, would be the appropriate party to help you know create the you know this this taxonomy and also and and really drive this uh, this awareness? I think as as you, you've articulated, would it be um, is it going to be companies? Do you think or or uh, do we need some some government involvement? And you know, I think that with the challenge that. You know, a lot of a lot of people in in you know in, in the public sector are very well meaning, but they just are not that up to speed on on technology. It's it, there's a pretty steep learning curve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I look at this as a supply demand problem again. Um, I do believe that the ones that are hiring should help uh, create the the taxonomy or the job ladder of what do they need, and it should come from that side. The people are going to hire, and then. That should align to the, you know, the professionals that create programs that will help align for those those needs. So, for example, I'll give you a really simple a simple use case. Um, one of the hyperscalers right now is deploying like 40 megawatts a month, 40 megawatts a month of new capacity. So when they go into a region, usually they're building out data centers that you know are anywhere from 10 to 20 megawatts each, and uh, whether it's their own or through a partner, etc but they have to build more capacity. So when they go into a region, they literally hire every electrician, every electrician <laughs> to go. And so it gets pulled off all these other projects. They don't have enough electricians. And then the same thing when it comes to mechanical engineers and then you know architects and others of how do you put these, these projects and turn them into uh, final things. So you know how, when you look at capacity that's coming in, I think there's an alignment to, there's a demand from all of these people that need to hire. And then there's the mapping to, you know, what they're hiring and then uh, to the programs that have to come out of those schools. So I think that there's, there's a, a joint thing where like, for example, there's um, a number of hyperscalers that are working together to create this taxonomy and we're participating in that, that job ladder so that that can be a better informed to schools. So I think there, you know, you think of the department of labor and, and others that are there, I think that they can help enable that and support that, but they can't lead it because they, they have the same lear- learning curve. They really need to say, who's hiring and what are they hiring? And we need that funneled in that direction so that, you know, the people that do education and academia for a living can do what they do best, align programs to demand. Does that yeah. make sense? Oh, it does, and and uh, yeah, I think there's. You know, I've had some other discussions previously about the uh, I, I, the lack of flexibility, or or you know the you know, the the the, the, the Undergraduate system, for instance, uh, you know, uh-huh. where we've you know we've got uh, you know associate's degrees and bachelor's degrees and these kind of two and four year uh, programs that are these prerequisites for a lot of jobs. But uh, you know, on the flip side, the the actual skill sets that people use on the job tend to be yeah. you know acquired in a much more dynamic way. I mean, are there um, are are there some discussions that you've had or or thought thoughts that you have about how uh, it might be possible to craft a a more, uh, I would say, adaptive uh, approach to you know upskilling people and being able to to put them into into the roles and fill that demand more more rapidly. 
You know, what comes to mind, I don't have all the answers for this, of course, none of us do, but we do see that there's trends and opportunities that are emerging. So I'll just give you a few thoughts around it. Um, I, I think that a trend, Google and Apple and a few other large companies are no longer requiring a four-year degree to be hired. They're looking at the potential of the employee and they expect that when they come in, they're going to have to train them. So imagine a high school student that's gone done a bunch of CS work and, and is able to, uh, to code and get to that per- certain level, then they can come in and actually get a job and be mentored by the people there and learn skills that would be more applicable than they would have at school. So, you know, the, the trend is changing a bit. So I look at that as, you know, in, in the past, all these trades, they used to have apprenticeships. And what did the apprentices do? They came in, were learning from masters. Those masters are passing down those skills. There's a similar thing here with these, these uh, different companies where, um, you know, internships, when they come in there, freshmen are usually not given this granted access, but sophomores and juniors and seniors are. Because um, when they come in, now they're given real projects. You know, in a previous life, in my previous companies, I was, I was hiring interns or bringing them in. We put them on production projects. They go back to school. They're all excited because they did something, you know, for example, at Uber or at Google or at, at Apple. And they're doing things that are really out there, true, real projects. Then they come back and they're excited for the next one. But they learn that real experience and ask the right questions when they go back to school for that next semester and term. Then they go in and they go to another internship program. And then ultimately, that's a recruiting ground for us, uh, you know, a trial by, by the companies to say, great, these people fit in the culture, they have the capability, the potential, and we want to hire them. We convert them into full-time employees. But I will tell you, there's one challenge in all of that. I do think the internship program is, is incredibly important. But the the corporate culture or the corporate structure in a lot of companies today is based on headcount. And so one of the limitations that happens is when you say uh, from a, an accounting standpoint or a finance standpoint, oh, you have 100 heads that you can hire 100 people. Okay, great. Well, I'm going to do software development engineering on this one. I have 10 in each. Well, I need to have more bang for my buck. I'm going to go hire senior people. And so it shuts out a lot of the you know, the, the recent college grads, recent college grads and others uh, as opportunities. So instead you look at, well, I could hire 10, 10 college students for, you know, and still have five senior people. I could do 15 hires, right, and get more capabilities and they could mentor them. But there's an economic problem here at the companies and the way they're structured from a finance standpoint. So that, that was been an interesting thing. It's almost like a forcing function. The executives have to drive down to say, you know what, college hiring is a priority. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you, I saw this at eBay, where John Donahoe, uh, when he did eBay Inc., when PayPal and StubHub and eBay were all together, he set a program in there to say, we will grant you budget, headcount budget, to ensure that there's going to be 20% new college hires in the company. It's that level program that really will drive this innovation and give opportunities for students to come in. And so I love that because um, I went over to UAUC with him. He was the executive sponsor, and I was a campus captain. And we were there trying to recruit more people to come into eBay. It was incredible. I mean, the talent that came out of that, because we were given the leeway to go back and hire more people than we would have if we were, we were stuck to a specific headcount budget. So there's some business elements of this one where there can be some strategic moves by executives or companies that can infuse so much of this creativity and innovation by having a good balance of senior, uh, mid-level, and uh, entry-level engineering and management talent. Yeah, that's got to be a uh, you know big shift for a number of companies. I think you you know, you, mm-hmm. you really put your uh, you know, you, you put your finger on this issue of culture. And I, it's funny because I, I think of Oracle, which um, had, mm-hmm. you know, at the time that they had acquired, you know, Solaris uh, or Sun was, was not, um, you know, they, they were, they were not necessarily considered that forward thinking in many ways, but, uh, but they've been quite active in, in, in recruiting on campuses recently. And, you know, I'd, mm-hmm. I'd, 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 I'd love to just go back to, you know, you, some of your, you know, uh, special, you know, your, your specialization and your experience and, and uh, get a bit of perspective on what does it take to, you know, to build a, 
a hyper hyperscale data center. I mean, since you started, uh, you'd be building, uh, you know, you'd you'd stick a bunch of uh, servers in a room, and you'd have to buy double what you needed, so that so you'd have some you know some failover. But that a lot, you know, so much has changed in that in that time. And the, but the demands have gotten so much greater. Um, you know, what 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 are what are some of the uh, some of the challenges and uh, and you know and and processes involved with with deploying? A, I mean, I don't think that even the term data center was even was in it was, it was kind of in the common lexicon even twenty to twenty five years ago. So this is this is kind of a new thing, and would love to get uh, you know kind of get your your perspective on on. You know how it's evolved, and and really, what's you know what goes into you know creating one of these uh, you know sure. these massive information factories as a, or you know information utilities, yeah. <laughs> these data centers. Yeah, um, I, so <laughs> that, that's a really um, broad question, but let me let me break it down to some very simple things. Um, you know, back in nineteen eighty nine uh, ninety. You know, think about it. You had wiring closets, you had server rooms, you had, you know, a few racks of things in there, and they were hodgepodge together. And then as the companies kept growing and growing and growing, they started building these larger configurations of systems. And I remember colos where you would have desktops or desk side servers sitting in a rack somewhere. Then it started migrating towards, you know, this you've got mainframes, everything else, and then you got distributed computing that starts to replace it. Then you have these hyperscale type growth. Uh, happening. So, for example, when AWS started, uh, you know, the 2000, 2006, 5, 6, maybe 7 range, they started looking at how do I take uh, this capacity and build out lots of it. So, a decade later, you know, it took for cloud to get adopted. Well, this was, you know, this was grid computing before. Then it was, um, you know, uh, load sharing facilities, et cetera. And then it turned into cloud. But all of it has the same underlying elements. And so what I've really learned, I think, in the last really 10 years is there is a recipe and a model of how you would go out and build hyperscale infrastructure. And a lot of the same common themes, not that I have all the answers to it, but there are common themes across many of these different hyperscale companies. So first one is that whether you're in cloud or on-premise for the data centers you build, you're going to create a region. And that region is basically a configuration of zones. And those zones are really a configuration of, of sets of hardware. So, for example, uh, in a previous life, we had um, we would put three zones in a region. Each of those zones had 480 cabinets, and it had a five-year life. So I would roll equipment in, fill up those 480 cabinets of a mixture of different types of equipment, and then three years later, I would be refreshing that equipment in place by just pulling out a whole rack and rolling another one in, and I would increase you know, 1.5 or 2x the, the actual power draw and compute capacity, but I would do it in the same zone. And then when I go to the end of that zone, I would replace the entire zone with a new one. So, you know, we would do these five to eight megawatt chunks of anywhere from 15 to 35,000 servers per zone. So, you know, there's a recipe here of how do you design the power, the space, the cooling, the compute, the network fabric that goes into that zone itself, the metro link that connects all those zones, and then the actual uh, WAN that connects this uh, global uh, re these global regions together. So that recipe, whether it's cloud, AWS, Azure, GCP, you know, Oracle's cloud, or it's on-premise, like what happens at Facebook and Uber and, and Apple, um, they follow a very similar model. It's all about building hyperscale standardized deployments that are rack and roll capable that you can say, I can drive down the efficiency or drive down the cost by, and increase the efficiency. And by the way, the, the, the magic that happens here is when the software is at a point where it is more resilient, you can now start to remove the redundancy in the data centers and the hardware deployments. It, does that make sense? It does. And that was actually the, the, my next question, which mm -hmm. was, you know, how you can ensure this, uh, this resiliency. And, and uh, mm -hmm. I mean, I, and I think you, you'd, um, you just you just made that point, but you, you earlier we were talking about you know grids going down and and uh, interestingly it, it was um, we we just had a reminder here in New York with a you know with a, a blackout we had another one uh -huh. uh, you know 16, 16 years ago but I mean there are uh, you know there with with any 
essential service, any essential infrastructure, yep. you have you know you have severe repercussions of, of failure. And and you know what what yep. are you know what are some of the considerations that go into into you know making infrastructure you know truly resilient from uh, you know, from uh, known knowns and, you know, uh, unknown yeah. knowns. Yeah. Yeah. So I, it, it really goes down to that architecture again, the resiliency, if you're, if you are designing for failure and when I say failure, you can say I, my lowest common denominator is a rack full of equipment. That entire rack should be able to fail. Then my next level is a block of those inside of the zone. And my next one for there is an entire zone. And then from there, it's an entire region, which is filled with three zones. So think of it as I'm going to have a compartmentalized failure, lowest common denominator in a rack, then a group of racks, and then an entire zone, then a region. If I design the architecture to say I will have faults like that, how do I dynamically um, uh, basically recover from those faults? So architectural principles have come into that. I'm saying from a, from a, a technology standpoint. I will have three zones, no more than two milliseconds away from each other. So that, for example, if I'm going to go write to a database, I'm writing the three parallel databases in one in each zone so that if I lose a zone, I don't lose any data. And so then if I lose two zones, I still don't lose data, but I have a risk and I will fail over an entire region at that point. So you design the principles to say, I expect failure. I plan for failure. And if you do that, imagine if I had one data center with everything in it, I'd have to have all this power and cooling and network redundancy, really, really high level, they call tier four uh, deployments. But if I now have three data centers that are working in, in uh, parallel, right? They're working in, in, together. I can have a whole one fail. I can make each of those less resilient from the physical infrastructure. And I will tell you, there are some of the hyperscalers that have really taken this to the, the next level. They have single corded servers. They have no cooling. It's all using outside mm. air. They don't have any back, uh, UPSs, and some of them have straight street power. Why? Because, you know, they're on one grid with one zone, a different power grid with another zone, and they can have the whole thing fail, and it's okay. It'll drop. The other ones will cover. It'll recover, and then they can still distribute across the three. That architectural um, strategy is what enables hyperscale and drives the unit cost down to be extremely efficient for the TCL. Well, it, it, and it's pretty amazing some of the uh, locations in the world where we're starting to see some uh, some some data centers and you know, opportunity. <laughs> oh yeah, and look, the emerging markets right now. So what's mature? Europe, Europe, and America have. You know, probably been in this space the longest when it comes to uh, digital infrastructure deployments. Then you've got all the emerging things in, in China and in India. And look, China is going to build more data centers this year than the entire rest of the world combined. One country. Wow. And then you look at India. India is bigger, is, is huge, and there's so much need there because guess what? There's another billion people that are, are continuously coming on and, and consuming more. And so that is playing out all over the world. And the places that have infrastructure already built, you know, just like you have road systems, you know, transportation, electrical grids, and water systems, you have digital infrastructure there, like the U.S. and Europe and, and uh, some other parts of the world. It already is built for it. But the ones that aren't, there's a huge amount of investment and growth underneath to build that foundation to enable energy, to enable connectivity, to enable compute and storage to get back up to where the rest of the world is at. And like I said earlier, half of the population is not even really participating in the digital age yet. So three and a half, four billion people? <laughs> wow. That's <laughs> All massive. going to come on. Massive opportunity. Yep. So you made a comment earlier that I, I I would love to expand on, which is the uh, the role of edge computing and you know where what what for one what do you see driving you know adoption of of uh, of, of edge computing yeah. um, at least from from uh, from use cases and then I'd like to get into some of the technology challenges and and opportunities that come you know from sure. uh, expanding your logic to incorporate uh, and, and architectures to incorporate edge computing yeah I, again I keep talking about this emerging space so 
you know, my prediction again is that the edge uh, deployments, even though they're going to be smaller, there's going to be so many more of them and so much demand, it will actually be a larger wave than all of the core infrastructure over the last decade. So edge will dwarf what's going on in core. That's not the meaning that the core, like these big data centers are going to go away. It's all going to grow. The tide is going to lift all boats in this. It's just that today, let me give you a use case, gaming, Fortnite, uh, anybody that's doing uh, virtual reality, when they have uh, these games built into the phones that have AI capabilities, I'm talking about chips and the new phones that are coming out, they're going to be driving more data that requires low latency performance. And imagine if you've got a fully immersive virtual reality experience, like Oculus glasses, et cetera, on that are, are fully uncovering your eyes, you're going to be doing 240 frames a second. So if you don't deliver 240 frames a second and people are looking around, their equilibrium will get messed up. They'll pass out or they'll throw up. Now, when you have, you remember um, Pokemon Go? Oh, yeah, of course. It was when it first came out. Like it, it was this, this, you know, global, um, amazing uh, thing to watch all these people starting to run around all these city chasing these virtual Pokemon all over the place. <laughs> but the demand that came from it, why? Because all these people wanted to participate. So um, what happened was they needed to find 40,000 servers. The ones that were serving us. 40,000 huh. servers. Okay? That happened like overnight. Why? Because the world population said, Pokemon Go, let's do it. That's what to, that was with uh, the technology that was available then, the network that was available then. So now imagine if we have 5G open up and all of these devices have, you know, a hundred times more bandwidth and they have phones that are, are uh, able to operate at low latency, high performance type things that demand is going to come in. And what that's forcing is that the core data center, like having a phone that will connect back to a, you know, exchange that goes back to a data center to do processing will not be enough. It'll be the people with all these devices, which is all of us, with the demand, because every time you get a phone, right, you realize you're using all the space and all the processing power, so you get another one, and they think, oh, I'll never use that. You use it all. It's there. And then you multiply that times the population. All that is going to drive more data, more uh, real-time need, and low latency expectations. So that, to me, is what's going to really push the, the edge deployments. Now, when I say edge, there's a micro-edge. And then there's just the edge that would serve a city, but micro edge in every building, everywhere across every major city. Why? Because it doesn't matter if you're in Ohio or New York City, you have people that are still wanting this experience. There's just the concentration thing. Well, there's going to be an edge need in all of them. And that, that is a huge emerging market. And so how do you deploy out there. And there's a uh, last mile element of this that I, I've been working on. It's really, really interesting. So, you know, there may be other players that don't, that don't participate today in this space that can. Why? Because they are the last mile. And it's not the telecoms and the clouds, et cetera. It's all these other people that, that own real estate and are in places that want to participate because guess what? I'm on this corner chasing Pokemon or doing a virtual reality or an augmented reality experience and I need to have my compute within that same block. Where do I get it? Today well, it's when, not there. And when you bring that up, it, 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 uh, I, I immediately think of what what happens when we move into a uh, really broader broader based adoption of you know autonomous mo autonomous cars and and mobility yeah. as a service. I mean, how how do you see that? Uh, you know, affecting the the need for the need for infrastructure and and, and edge computing and the, some of the considerations that 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 we got to be uh, looking at right now for this to become a reality. Yeah, there there's um, I, I I learned something in the last couple of years that uh, changed my mind. So you think of uh, you think of autonomous vehicles, and everyone is thinking, oh, there's so much data generated in those autonomous vehicles, and so much need of that data to be offloaded. We've never seen that much data, like terabytes of stuff coming off of every car. And the reality is this, they're autonomous. So they can, if everything works the way that they are designed, accommodate 95% of the things they need to do within the car. 
This isn't like I'm streaming data back and forth to these different things. I have small snippets of data that are going back. But if I have an autonomous vehicle driving a street and they've got LIDAR that's, that's doing the 3D modeling they've got in real time, they've got cameras that are watching and they're doing, you know, um, uh, this is a cat, this is a telephone pole, this is a person walking across the street. But it's doing that processing within its, itself. So 95% of that data is going to be the same thing. And now as I've got hundreds of cars driving that same street, that data is going to get thrown away. I don't need it. What you need is a delta. I just saw something that's different. I couldn't recommend. I couldn't actually understand. So, and then these 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 snippets. So imagine if there's an incident, then you need to be able to get the previous 90 seconds and the the next 30 seconds after the incident. Why? So you can go back and interpret what happened. But incidents are what really mission critical. That will go over cellular or some other close proximity Wi-Fi to get it out. But it's not a massive amount of data. Now, there will be a large volume of these cars and more stuff will be streamed and they'll start to do a mesh with each other. So data will go back and forth, but it's not huge amounts of data so that's going in. And so I think that there's kind of a misnomer on the, you know, the autonomous vehicles are going to eat the edge when it comes to bandwidth. I think there's going to be lots and lots of devices out there uh, that will eat that bandwidth, but it's not necessarily autonomous vehicles. They're going to participate in it. But like I said, the data that's on there the majority of it you don't need. The big stuff is video. The next one is LIDAR. And the one after that is the sensors and the cars. And so you want a snippet of all that for an incident, but not 24 hours a day at terabytes hmm. a day. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. I, um, But when you were talking about augmented reality, which Pokemon really was the first breakout, uh, you know, augmented mm -hmm. reality application, you know, are, are there... You know, are there other potential use cases or uh, demand catalysts or, or, or traffic catalysts that uh, mm -hmm. that you see that that might might also you know have a huge impact on uh, you know surprising people and in, in terms of the mm -hmm. you know the need to build out capacity quickly? Yeah, I you know the thing that's emerging and again I, there's more and more of this popping up, but. Um, you know, smart cities, everybody's talked about that, IoT, all the devices around there. Um, but really, I think the one that's emerging is still gaming. Because gaming does have a need for high bandwidth, low latency, real, near real time, right, uh, uh, experiences. And that will lead, that will drive the need. And then, you know, as soon as 5G opens up, you'll have all of these creative minds coming up with new ways to use it. Did anybody even envision a Pokemon Go <laughs> a year before it actually happened? No. Did they expect it to blow up that much? No. But how many more of those are going to come because they've got a hundred more lanes of bandwidth and their, their performance from a latency standpoint is even better. And, you know, so again, that will drive more capacity at the edge that's needed versus at the core. So we don't even know what's, what's coming out. The trends, like I said, it really is gaming and that virtual reality, augmented reality, and most likely these large mesh networks that have a mission critical thing will need that. But it's the sum of all those parts that's going to increase the bandwidth consumption and the compute needed needs at the edge. Yeah. It's not any single one. So as you as you look out, I mean, if let's look out over the next decade. Are there you know, how do you see the uh you know the the market evolving and are, are there are there any either you know, constraints or opportunities that uh, that you see, you know, emerging up up ahead as as we start to see mm -hmm. that you know these, these continual forces of demand and and you know and, and expansion driving you know driving need for more you know more and more uh, more and more capacity and and uh, and yeah. <laughs> bandwidth. You know, to me, it comes down to concentration of people. So, you know, uh, one of the coolest things I, I, I saw at Uber was um, this uh, Uber Elevate. And uh, so imagine we've, we've built out infrastructure uh, with roads for people to connect and highways and freeways, et cetera, and uh, to be able to get more people, right, to more places. Then we realized we need to have more space, so we created high-rises. Those high-rises now concentrate more people, yet we have one dimension of roads it's, it's horizontal. So now you look at people drones that are going to happen. This is Uber Elevate. You're going to be able to say, I'm going to call this thing. And instead of doing a two-hour commute back and forth from San Francisco to Saratoga, it's 15 minutes. So the, the concentration of people into cities at these peak times, you're going to have all these different levels. Just like a high-rise, 
I'll be able to have seven layers of people drones going back and forth. They call them vertical takeoff and landing devices, right? They start at one point, go up, go over, go down. People get off, others get on, and they continue to repeat this. That's the simplest autonomy problem to solve. And it's also, you know, controlled airspace, et cetera. So that's going to happen all over. And then that's going to concentrate more people in these cities. It's also going to now um, expand where people can live. So if I can live two hours away, if I had to drive it and be 20 minutes by, you know, uh, Uber Elevate, then it affects real estate outside. But it also will now have more concentration of people in the cities. That'll increase demand. So really, it's those high population of where people are that will drive edge even more. And this new technology that's now allowing us to get more people in faster and make their lives more efficient, you know, they're all going to be driving more demand. That's pretty incredible. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, just thinking of the implications are, are pretty mind-boggling. So um, I'd, l- I'd love to ask just, you know, broadly, like, looking forward, what are you most optimistic about? And, you know, what what what, what are some considerations or concerns that keep you up at night? <laughs> I, I say that what I'm most optimistic about is we're living in such an incredible time right now. Think about it. We're about to experience the Jetsons. It was on television, right? George Jetson and, you know, flying back and forth from his job. We're going to have that with uh, these, uh, these <laughs> Uber Elevate type things. That's going to continue to go, whether it's, you know, Uber Eats or uh, Amazon, the deliveries. I think that uh, our delight with technology and our efficiencies are going to continue to go up and up and up and up. The thing that keeps me up at night I think is, you know, the underlying infrastructure to feed that demand is one, but I also look at it from a sustainability standpoint. We're going to have more and more and more consumption. And if we don't get our arms around this, you know, the global, the global uh, environmental impacts of this, because we're going to need more power. We're going to need more compute. We're going to need more connectivity. We have to do it in a sustainable way. And so, you know, at iMasons, we have four pillars that we care about. First is industry awareness. We need people to understand that this industry exists and that there's, you know, rewarding and lucrative careers in it. The next one is that we need an education system that, uh, right, an education focus to help drive more people into it. Thirdly, it's diversity. We need to have more diversity. And right now we're focusing on gender and continue to expand it out to other underrepresented groups because less than 10% of our workforce in the infrastructure space, digital infrastructure, are female. Then the other one is sustainability. How do we, as an industry who have a responsibility as we build out tens of billions of dollars worth of infrastructure and drive these things that are going to be, you know, 10 to 20 year assets. How do we do it sustainably? How do we drive where there's an economically beneficial deployment of infrastructure that's hundred percent renewable? These are the kind of things that, you know, we have to do as leaders, I think across the world and how we build out sustainable infrastructure. Oh, that's, so that's, that's what keeps me up at night. That, that, that's a uh, that's that's uh, many life's work ahead, and I, I'm I, that's a really an amazing uh, amazing opportunity ahead. But it's that's I mean it, it's great to hear that that you and the infrastructure nations are 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 pursuing this, and and you know hopefully you know hopefully people listening to this will have have some more awareness and and direct uh, direct young and and promising students into the you know in, into the industry. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, I have a, one final question that I always like to ask, which is a, uh, a recommendation of a, whether you have a recommendation of a good resource or, or book that you might be able to share for, for our listeners. Uh, you know what? Three, three books come to mind for me. So, um, cause I just read them and they're amazing. One of them you, you had featured on here, which is Julie Albright's, uh, left to their own devices. Well, I, 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 that- I couldn't agree more. I, I, she's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and she's on our board, right, for Infrastructure Masons, and it's such an amazing perspective for us to really understand. And so uh, that book, I think, is worth worth reading, especially for everybody who's in, you know, baby boomers or Gen X, et cetera. Do you understand with this new workforce, with all this capability, how they operate? Because you can't apply the old principles of how you do it to this generation, right? They're digital natives, and they, they move around. They care about purpose and cause, and you know, they, they're looking for a community. They're looking for a place to be able to belong. 
So anyways, understanding that is a critical piece, I think, for everybody. If you're going to manage it, you need to understand the companies have to adapt to this generation, right? Whether it's millennials or Gen Z, to be effective for them and for the, the companies. So that's, that's one. Uh, another one uh, for me is uh, AI superpowers. So this is a book written by the top AI researcher in the world. Uh, and he talks about the battle between Silicon Valley and China for AI dominance. It is fascinating, the amount of data that's in there. And where you look at where China was three years ago, just three years ago, and where they are today, they were laggards. Now they are literally submitting more than half of the actual white papers into the AI Congress. That, I mean, that is huge, the amount of investment that a country is doing. So I think it's really important for people to understand uh, both the pros and cons about AI, and because it will be here no matter what. And how, what does it mean to the world? And then the last one uh, was written by, by John Chambers. It's called Connecting the Dots. I think it was one of the best business books out there. And uh, I happened to be at dinner with John when he was signing these at the uh, Bloom Aspire Conference. And he was a mentor of John Donahoe, right? It was the, the CEO of eBay Inc. And now is the CEO of ServiceNow. And John Donahoe was a mentor of mine. And so I just went over and said, hey, I, um, I just want to say thank you because you're, you know, you're a mentor of a mentor of mine. And it was just an amazing little moment, right? But his insights of running Cisco and his philosophy, how he approaches it and what he did with business and his playbooks, they are really impressive. That book, Connecting the Dots, is something I believe every business professional and technology professional should read. It will give you that full perspective of what it means to operate in this digital, this digital infrastructure world. Wow. Well, those are great recommendations. And Dean, this has been a, a, a fascinating conference. And, and I actually have to um, put in my own recommendation, a little plug, which I know that you, uh, um, you, you know, you, you, you probably wouldn't do it, but I, I uh, your daughter is a fabulous singer and, and her, her <laughs> band, uh, Citizen Queen, I had the pleasure of hearing at, um, uh, at Madison Square Garden. So I'm, I'm going to put that in the show notes that I think uh, everybody <laughs> should check them out. They're uh, a, a wonderful, wonderful acapella group of, uh, of very talented young women. And um, anyway, just, just, I wanted to, <laughs> I just put well, thank that you in for there. that. Yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm a proud dad. I'm biased, but they're good. <laughs> yeah. No. It was. It was. Uh, it was really terrific. So. Um, so. So. Anyway, this is. This has been a uh, another podcast uh, for Momenta Edge. Uh, we've been speaking with Dean Nelson, who is uh, uh, founder and chairman of the Infrastructure Masons. Again, it's. Uh, Ed McGuire, uh, your insights partner at Momenta Partners. And uh, Dean, thanks again. It's been uh, an, just an absolute pleasure. Great talking to you. Thanks, Ed. You've been listening to Momenta Partners' Uncommon Perspectives podcast series. We hope you've enjoyed the discussions, and we, as always, welcome your comments, input, and suggestions. Thank you for listening.